Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The Justice Department released a report this week on Alabama's terrifying prison conditions. Investigators documented rampant murder, rape, and drugs inside the system, the product of long-term neglect. The report suggests that the conditions are so poor that they systematically violate prisoners' constitutional rights. Alabama prisoners have been organizing against these conditions for years, most prominently within the framework of the Free Alabama Movement. Prisoners and Holman Correctional set the precedent for the 2016 National Prisoner Strike with a series of hunger strikes, work stoppages, and uprisings. Imprisoned organizers have criticized previous administrative reform efforts as mere cover for increasing repression and investing more money in expanding maximum security and isolation wings. It is yet to be seen whether this report will lead to serious changes or simply a repeat of past repressive cycles. Washington State Prisons recently banned all book packages from nonprofit organizations, mirroring similar escalations in censorship in Indiana and other states. Seattle Books to Prisoners released this statement. The Washington Department of Corrections, DOC, has just prohibited all nonprofit organizations from mailing free, used books to every prisoner in the state. Across the country, dozens of volunteer nonprofits respond directly to prisoners' book requests. Together, these groups send about 200,000 free books every year to people behind bars, from westerns and science fiction novels to books about starting businesses after release. Access to information in prisons is a lifeline for literacy and skill building. The Humble Dictionary, a book which most of us no longer possess as a physical book, is the number one request by prisoners because good sources of information are so scarce. For the many prisoners and their families who can't afford to buy new books, free used books are a lifeline. For prisoners in solitary confinement, around 80,000 at any given time, these book donations may be the only reading material they have. We love prison libraries and their hardworking staff, but they are chronically underfunded, understaffed, and not accessible for all prisoners or open when needed. In Pennsylvania, for example, prisoners are allowed a maximum of 90 minutes per week at the prison library. Additionally, books checked out from prison libraries must be returned and may not be available at any given time due to circulation. By contrast, books mailed from prison book programs belong to prisoners forever as personal property. Four facilities in Washington don't even have on-site libraries, an indication of the ongoing need for services like prison book programs to fill these gaps. This ban will deny incarcerated people in Washington access to literally thousands of books. Groups like the Prison Book Program in Massachusetts, Books to Prisoners in Washington, and LGBT Books to Prisoners in Wisconsin have successfully sent books without incident to Washington prisoners since 1973. Sadly, this isn't the first time that a DOC has attempted to ban our programs. In 2018 alone, both Pennsylvania and New York attempted similar bans. Most attempted bans cite security reasons, though few, if any, can cite a single instance where a prison book program ever sent contraband material. Together, we've stopped these attempted bans in Pennsylvania and New York in 2018. Let's stop it now in Washington. Please join other prison book program supporters to contact the Washington DOC and demand that this new policy, a memo amended to policy 450.100, to be rescinded at once. 
If you want to support the fight against censorship, Seattle Books to Prisoners invites you to call Roy Gonzalez, manager of the prison division, at 360-725-8213 and share your opinion. This week, KiteLine welcomes the continued contributions of Mark Cook, who we recorded in conversation with Alejo Stark. Mark is a former prison rebel dating back to ambitious organizing on the inside in the 1960s. Following his release from prison, he co-founded the Seattle chapter of the Black Panther Party and later went underground with the George Jackson Brigade. Due to his guerrilla activities, he served another quarter century in prison before being released in the year 2000. Since then, he's continued to organize and contribute to the prisoners' movement. Now, Mark continues to reflect on prison organizing and struggling against prison, both inside and outside the prison walls. He also speaks on the importance of communication as a fundamental right for everyone, and emphasizes the importance of communication for prisoners. So what I want to discuss here, or have you, have you discuss, is what can we do to get prisoners to talk to themselves? Or can we talk to them, to tell them to talk to themselves? Don't isolate anybody. A prisoner, a convict, and a convict. We're out on the streets. We need help, too. So we'll help, it, help them, but they have to help us. It's, it's all one thing. It's just like the Me Too movement or the Black Lives Matter, however you look at it. So one more thing. Some people say, well, what about the, we're dealing with women's prisoners. I know a lot of most, of, the, most of the movement in the past was predominantly women. Most of the Panthers were women. Two-thirds of the Panthers were, were women. People don't know that. In fact, when we had our 50th anniversary meeting in, in local uh, Seattle, a lot of the old women Panthers came up. I remember them in the past when they had them big, beautiful afros, and now they're down to dreads, <laughs> if, if they can do that. I mean, and they're just as active and just as strong now as they were back then. You remember a mimeograph with the purple ink? Yeah. And the light hits it long enough, and it's just gone. So that's what happened to the bottom. Yeah, the way we printed it, it was in gelatin. I'm going to do this real quick. We typed on the back of a, the mimeograph paper, and we... We, put, pour, we boil the gelatin, this is in our cell, put it in a frame, a wooden frame on a mirror, and when it's smoothed out, we put this thing we uh, typed on in there, and it absorbed the ink, pull it off. Then we put blank paper down there, spread it out, pull it off. And that was our press. So that's what we did. It's, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's a, a general stuff. And so we used uh, the mimeograph stuff, and like I say, it just, uh, it just fades with the light. And it's, I think it, I'm pretty sure that the Department of Corrections has an archive someplace. They got every copy we did. They tried to catch us. They tried to find out who was doing it, how we were doing it. They locked the whole prison down, and we were still doing it. They, they took all the Diddle Master ink, locked that up, and we were still doing it. Uh, they did, just did, we put one of our, 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 our newspaper articles. We said, we're printing this with blueberry juice and flat, two flat rocks. <laughs> but, they, but they never did bust us. But go ahead. You, you described the Walla Walla action as a strike. So I'd be curious to hear more about the details of how, how it went down, what happened, um, oh. how many of the folks inside were, you know, what kind of work were people doing, and, okay, uh, and, and how many as well? At that time, we were doing all the so-called license plates for the state of Washington. Uh, I think we were doing tabs at that time, too. We did all the uh, metal lockers for schools and businesses, all the metal desks. It was, a, it was huge. Uh, I was a spray painter, and I taught people how to do the, the spray painting on these lockers. It, 
and I breathed that paint for about three years. When I got out for about three years, I'd get rid of. Uh, when I when I got out for th three years, I'd blow in paint out of my nostrils. It was, even though I wore a mask, it didn't stop the paint from getting in. I didn't know that until after I got out, and maybe that's the cause of, of this thing I have. Where I cough a lot, sneeze, my eyes keep watering, and doctors told me it's allergy. Now I'm probably I've probably been poisoned by that stuff in there. I messed with, messed with a lot of toxic stuff when I was in prison. When first time I got locked up, I was working on these printing presses as a kid. I had to set the type, I had to melt that, the, the lead down, and I breathed in the smoke when it was boiling and melting down to go into linotype machines. So there's a, a lot of stuff that is done in prison that you're not only not getting paid, but they're poisoning, they're, they're ruining your health. And I don't know if that's what matters with my mind right now, but my the doctor told me no. I just born with this. So, the strike is. <laughs> excuse me. It, it started when they had this movie. It's called uh, One Hundred Rifles with Raquel Welch and Jim Brown. They were starring in it, and there was racist prisoners who didn't want that shown because it was a, Raquel Welch is a white woman, and uh, Jim Brown, of course, was a, a black football player, became a star, a movie movie actor, and we had this thing where we would choose what movies were going to be shown on the, the weekend. And different groups would put up their bid for movies. And we finally got our bid in. We said we wanted 100 rifles. So they brought the movie in, but they wouldn't show it because they figured there's going to be a riot. So that was what kicked off the riot. Not the riot, but the strike within the prison. The black prisoners said, we're going to lock down. We're not going to work on them. We can see that movie. Okay. This is you know, personal conditions, abuse, what we call racial abuse. And we're, we're going to fight it. We're not going to have that no more. And uh, so when they called us, the so-called con bosses, in before the ward, and they wanted to know what was going on. Now, I had the only wish, issue I had that I could bring out that was verifiable was that prisoners were segregated according to their race when you're putting, putting in cell. And on jobs, they had these uh, uh, name boards outside, little tags on there with your name on it. There's blue tags for the blacks. There's white tags for the whites. There were uh, orange tags for the Native Americans and the Mexicans, and they were to be sold separately. Well, I pointed that out, and I said, you know, a lot of the guys come in from Seattle. We have friends, you know, we run with in Seattle, and we can't even sell with them. And there's jobs out here that we can't even work in because, you know, racists won't allow us to work into those jobs. And so he said, the warden said, oh, I didn't know that. I mean, he, not only is he warden, he worked as a, you know, a rank and file officer before he became warden. In fact, his father-in-law was a warden that he uh, took the job over. So when the blacks said, we're going to lock down and we're not coming out uh, until we have our conditions settled, the other, other prisoners said, well, it makes us look kind of weak. You know, they're standing up for themselves. We're not standing up for, for ourselves. And so... Uh, they made the movement locked down with all the blacks. Yeah, I was just trying to get a sense of how many people participated and if it was a strike. Oh, the whole prison went a, down. The whole prison locked yeah. down. The working, and, and you said people were also working on making plates and stuff. How many, would you say that most people were working? Or? That was the biggest uh, employment, uh, or next to the cannery. Okay, Ed, back in the day, prisoners used to grow their own food. They, they took care of the cattle, the pigs, the chickens, we fed ourselves right. basically right. before the private industry came in and, and got stuff. It, it started up with a, a company called Bird's Eye. 
Okay, the, the other ones that started off with the, the TV trays, you know, where you had a full meal on that thing. But they s said that they wanted that food, uh, the stuff that we were growing, you know, and they'd pay the state for it. They and so they started off doing that. The way Washington State went gradually, they ended up to this day, they're doing feeding with a private industry is feeding them now, right? So did the cannery and the license plate, did everyone in both those industries stop working? Everybody. Mm -hmm. Everybody set the hospital. How long was that? I, I remember, we, I think we started in early November. They, we had uh, our, the con bosses that ran our, uh, what you call it, uh, inmate advisory council. There was two guys that run that. It was Jim Rabadou and an, an, another guy. They took them out and locked them up. Uh, when Monroe, was, not Monroe, but uh, McPhail Island was a federal prison, they took them out of the state and put them in there and said, they're not coming back till you guys break this strike. And that made everybody tighten up. And they said, well, we're not breaking this strike till you bring them back. And the, our underground newspaper was printing at that time. And we set a line for everybody. Nobody breaks the strike until they, at least until they bring them guys back. And they hung out till after New Year's. I know that. And I think they brought them back in January and, mm -hmm. and broke the strike. Only, only the black prisoners uh, struck because of that film. Uh, I mean, as far as I know. But the others joined in because we did that. Whites yeah. and Indians and Hispanics, yeah. What was the motivation for the... Everybody? Yeah, for everybody. Because they didn't want to look weak to start off with. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. okay. <laughs> That's pretty much how a lot of strikes go. Uh, when they do kick off, some people don't want to be involved because they want to get out of prison, have a good record, et cetera. But the peer pressure is so heavy, everybody joins in. When you get a majority of them going, in fact, if you get 20% going, which is generally the, the really stand-up people in prison, uh, Others will follow. Well, there's a lot of prisoners that are so abused by other prisoners, like the, uh, uh, what you call it, the child molesters and rapists when they come in. They're treated pretty cruel, you know. And so they want, don't want to be identified with, with convicts when it comes to doing uh, actions like that. But they're pressured. They know what they got coming if they don't join in. There's no, not too many places you could run and hide in prison. to human rights than this discommunication and, and wage labor. Wage labor is just, you know, that's something that has to be discussed among, you know, communists, whether you're Leninist or Maoist or whatever, you know. Uh, when Marx wrote his, uh, and Engels wrote their uh, Communist Manifesto, that wasn't the end of it. I mean, he, they didn't see the whole world uh, as it was then, nor as it's changing now. They looked mostly at a... Uh, the proletariat or industrial workers as being the, the, the core to the, to the total movement. Uh, and they joined in later with the peasants. I think, the, I don't know, Lenin or I think it was Lenin more than anybody else, joined the pe peasants and the, the proletariat together. And now things have changed. So service workers outnumber the, the manufacturing workers. It, it just keeps changing. Okay, when I talk about uh, communi right, communi communication is a human right and wage labor is a human right, 
These are specific concerns of prisoners right now from a Maoist perspective. They have to fight for those. They have to tell, these are our rights and you're not taking them away. We're going to strike because of these rights. You try to shut us up, we're going to strike. You try to keep using slave labor on us, we're going to strike. We're going to strike until things change. And over the, the years, decades, uh, all the strikes that have been going on are generally around these, these issues. You know, uh, they don't want prisoners to talk to each other. They have rules in prisons where you can't gather more than three together at a time unless you're playing basketball or something like that. Yeah. Trying to keep people apart. They shake down your cells constantly looking for literature you have. They've gone so far as to lock people in solitary confinement for having a book of George Jackson in their cell. It's a legal book, you know. But if it says George Jackson, they'll lock you in solitary confinement indefinitely. I wonder, I mean, I don't know what Mark thinks about this too, whether or not you know, we can make a claim about wage labor as a human right and the difference between that and the possibility for there to even be such a thing as a wage to begin with mm -hmm. in terms of the way in which prison labor is set up, right? So I think kind of what I was trying to argue and based on the way in which, you know, you know maybe a kind of a more materialist reading of the situation would be, the question could be like, can the state even pay such a wage? Uh, I think the answer is no, <laughs> right? I, I don't. The, the, yeah. big, the, the, both the states and the uh, federal government have gone into huge debt, money they don't have. Sure. And so the sure. question becomes yeah. whether or not the, the, we are at a moment in the history of, of capitalism where I, I think what we're seeing is that the, I mean, my sense is that the crisis inside has to do in part because of the incapacities for the state to pay the wage, one, right? Obviously, people are getting paid 20 cents, you know, uh, a day, but also the state is also incapable of paying for the basic, like like we saw in Michigan, right? For instance, in other places, uh, keeping barely habitable conditions is already a problem, right? So not only can the state not only maintain something like the social wa wage or a welfare state, uh, but also it cannot even maintain its warfare state, right? So the question becomes, I think, to demand for something like a wage, as as many uh, comrades inside are doing. I wonder what the limits are of that, you know, just in terms of state budgets. Like, we can demand something, but in terms of how, so I, I wonder what, maybe instead of demanding for a wage, we make it possible, as people are also doing, right, not to be recognized through a wage, not to be recognized through, um, you know, as, as humans, necessarily, uh, breaking this logic of recognition, you know, which is fundamentally based on you know, anti-blackness, as, as you were saying. Um, but but rather push for another element of that, which is the riotous element that is not willing to be recognized, that is simply willing to, by rioting, make it impossible for something like the prison to exist to begin with. And therefore, in that uh, in that in that contradiction between either recognizing be, being recognized as a worker or a human that deserves a wage, mm -hmm. uh, you create a situation in which prisons themselves become impossible. Right. So I think there's there's maybe this contradictory element of both. At once, you know, attempting to be recognized as workers and be you know, remunerated for that labor, and at once also, the sense of like, you know, we're not going to deal with this. You know, um, we're just going to shut this down, right? And and you saw it in Alabama at Holman, I think in, in Michigan, in, in Texas, throughout the place. So there seems to be kind of a, a double contradictory element, which is interesting to think about too, right? Uh, at but, once, I mean, this is. But we I are trying to see. change the conditions, and just shutting the prison down isn't exactly changing. No, I agree, conditions. right? Yeah. But I uh, guess the long-term goal, uh, as I as I see from guys inside, they, their claim is that 
the point is to make prisons unmanageable. In this state, we have the uh, LFO, right? Legal financial obligation. When you get sentenced in court, you have to pay for the court or the lawyer that represented you. And what, when you're in prison, that bill grows. There's no way for you to pay it back. Uh, e even it collects interest while you're in prison, by the way. So e even if you get out, you can't pay it. The, the, you're a convict, you can't get a job, you can't pay it. it it's free labor. I mean, I don't think just shutting, shutting a prison down is going to say, well, we can't run prisons because we keep shutting them down. I can show you prisons we have in the federal systems where nobody works in those prisons and they keep everybody in solitary confinement like in uh, uh, this. One was Marion. The other, I forgot where the other one is. The Supermax. So, yeah, these, yeah. Are, these are Supermax. They're putting them everywhere. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. and that's one of the reasons for solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. People who will strike are put in solitary confinement. So, uh, I think it's, in a sense, uh, but can you put two million people in solitary confinement? Yes, they can. <laughs> Please. You think so? Oh yeah. Uh, if you haven't looked at uh, Auschwitz yet. <laughs> yeah, looking at sure. Yeah, but I'm, I'm saying that maybe the state's capacities have to transform, really transform, right? And mm -hmm. the question is whether or not that's uh, possible. If they have to pay, if they have to pay wages, they, they know that, then they're not going to keep that many people in prison. Uh, yeah. yeah that, that's it's, that's one of the attacks. We're, we're trying to stop mass incarceration. I mean, you, you can say quickly, it's just abolish prisons right away. It's not going to happen that way. It's going to be a step. Cutting down on mass incarceration is one way to cut it down. Uh, Ed Mead wrote a, a legal document when he was at Monroe, serving time in Monroe once, where there was uh, multiple, uh, uh, what's called selling, many people in one cell. And the court ruled that they could only put one man in one cell. Okay, that cut down on the population. They had to get rid of them, and they did. They didn't build more prisons. They just got rid of them. Uh, there's a lot of things that prisons do that they can stop doing. Uh, they keep prisoners in, in prison longer than their sentences, uh, even though they're, they're supposed to be released. I was, I was paroled in, say, uh, uh, January of 2010, but they wouldn't let, let, me, let me out till April. The reason for that is they get paid by each by prisoners each prisoner to have in custody. So even though I had finished my sentence, they weren't gonna let me out until, they, they, the excuse they used was, well, they have to advise the person who I assaulted before I could let me out. Or other people, they do the same thing to other people. To this day, they still keep people in prison longer than their actual sentence. Daoud, which is a, he's a political prisoner. He was a Panther. Uh, Baranza Bowers is his name. Uh, he was in Leavenworth with, I was in Leavenworth with, with him. Hmm. He finished his sentence. They gave him a, a mandatory sentence, max. He maxed it out. They wouldn't let him. They changed the law. They said that Panthers were terrorists, so they didn't have to let, let him out. And so he, he, I don't know if he's out now, but he's been fighting for his release, even though he's totally done his sentence. Uh, they can cut down on the population. This is just mass incarceration. Get to that point, we're talking about abolishing him. Even on this thing, we, uh, in George Jackson's Brigade, we say we're going to raise the prisons to the ground. And read it. it can be done. It's not a far-fetched thing. I've been in, in uh, prison struggles for 50 years straight. Every, while I was in prison, when I got out, I've never stopped. 
I've inherited money and given all of my money to a prison struggles. The, the last lump I had about sixty thousand dollars went about thirty thousand went toward the uh, California prison strikers strike. There was a uh, Marilyn Buck when she got she's a political prisoner when she, she helped uh, uh, break Assad secure out of prison. She's living in Cuba right now. So Marilyn Buck got out. We gave uh, fifteen was it fifteen hundred dollars to her. But we spent. I'm broke. Ed still got some money going. But he's still pouring his money into prison movement. This is something that happens. You know, it's a protracted struggle. We know it's not going to happen overnight. But we're trying to figure it out, analyze. I'm, everything you've said, I'm listening to. We're going to try and write articles to get prisoners to talk about some of these things that you've spoken on. It's something we have to analyze and figure out. I never thought that we'd be able to take over a, a prisoner for ourselves and run it the way we wanted to run it. Uh, but it happened. It was just a fluke. They educated us we, and put us, let us get together, and we figured out how the system runs. We figured out, you know, what the psychology of people are, just like you figure out the psychology of animals. Like, was it uh, Robert Audrey? He figured out territorial imperative among animals. That that's the way they live. They had to have a territory, and they'll fight for their territory against their own kind or anybody. You know, and it's, when we have pets, we've seen our, our, our pets growling at people. It's, it's a territorial imperative, you know. Figuring out the psychology of people is the same way. Gangs inside of prisons, they have territory, and they all fight to keep it. They fight among each other to keep it. And it's hard to bring them together because of, of this thing. It's a, it's a complicated thing. I've been struggling for 50 years. I mean, I was politicized by the Black Panther Party, and ever since then, I've been moving on. And I didn't isolate it to just a black community. My first movement was inside a prison when we did the bomb and we brought everybody together. Even though there were racist in there, we brought them together, a common cause, and, and they stuck with us. When we did in, in the California strike, when those guys were in solitary confinement, the shot callers or the con bosses in solitary confinement told people up above, everybody, put aside all your differences, all your antagonisms against you know, race, and come together. And they did it. In fact, people started doing it in jails and on the streets. It was, it was so strong, so strong a statement of people in common cause, of uh, things that affected them, that they knew were going to, you know, the, the people in solitary confinement, they knew they were going to affect people who were not in solitary confinement. So everybody joined together on that. Is, uh, the prison struggle isn't the same. Not, it's not, not even the same in every prison. Every prison is different. The prisons are prisons, but every prison is different. Sometimes you get away with stuff in one prison, you can't get away with another. I've gone to prisons where you, they, they tell you, you can't wear jockey shorts at this prison. Others say you can't wear boxer shorts at this prison. And they have this really weird rules about why they don't want to do this. Just like the, the, the growing no hair, no, no sideburns, no mustaches, short hair all the time. That was a rule of some prisons, but not all prisons. We had convinced them to let us buy our own clothes. We said, you'd save your money if you let us buy our own clothes. And they did. Of course, a couple of people ran off in their own clothes. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 
47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at kiteline at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.